John, thanks so much for coming to the Lowy Institute. Tonight you're going to be giving a lecture to the New Voices delegates here about what it's like to be a young Australian correspondent, particularly in China. Have you thought about your remarks or what you're going to say there? So I just wanted to talk about some of the things that really put China on the map in Australia um, over the period where I was there um, and how that was also a, personal, a process of personal exploration of me, you know, mm. for me, how, do, how does China work, you know, what is happening here and therefore what does it mean for Australia. Mm. And I guess as a, a journalist you've probably seen a change over time from when you arrived to when you left. Sure. And particularly, I guess, sort of how did you go in with information sources and actually getting the news sources on yeah. China? Look, I think one of the myths about China is it's completely opaque, you know, that there's this massive monolithic machine um, which nobody can get inside and, you know, and so why bother trying? Um, and look, that's partly true. It is a huge machine, but um, I think it's increasingly obvious that there's lots of cracks in that monolith. Um, there's lots of opposing voices, there's lots of opposing interests within the machine. Essentially, the Communist Party itself is now so big that all the different, you know, so many of the differences in China are actually within inside the tent now. Mm. Um, so part of my job was to try and to kind of see those fault lines and see how one part of the machine thought and acted towards another. And for me, that was um, that was interesting. You know, I hadn't really expected um, to to find that, and it was a very kind of, um, in a way, a profitable vein to mine. Uh, the other thing that's hugely changed is there's. Now, the degree of professionalism in my industry, in, in, in journalism, is, you know, has increased almost off the chart in just the six years that I was there, both um, domestically with Chinese media publications. Um, there's new interesting publications coming on board all the time. There's a new class of Chinese journalists who see themselves as media professionals first, um, whereas mm. before, you know, it really was, the media was a, uh, an arm of the propaganda department, now it's a massive spectrum of, mm. um, of voices. And also foreign media too, there's, um, there's now really professional bureaus in half a dozen newspapers and wire agencies that simply weren't there before or weren't doing the same sort of um, in-depth exploration that, um, six years ago. Mm. How much has social media and Weibo, we keep hearing about the rise of Weibo, I mean, has that, is that part of that? trend that you're seeing? Absolutely. It's, uh, in a way, it's driving the, the local media agenda. Um, when people no longer have to meet, read the People's Daily, uh, um, you know, that kind of stodge because there's uh, you know, an infinite array of voices to, to access um, online, and particularly Weibo, Sina uh, Weibo, there's, um, it really has, I think, transformed the way that Chinese citizens see their own country and see themselves um, because there's now these virtual networks of people and interests that didn't exist. I mean, Weibo is really only three, four years old, you know, from mm. nowhere and now dominates the, the, the literate class in China. And as much as it's contained, restricted, blocked, um, it sort of just keeps on morphing into other, into other technologies and other fields and other voices. Uh, I, I think it's one of those changes that's impossible to reverse. And bringing it back to Australia, I mean, how important do you think it is having you as an Australian with an Australian mm. eyes and ears and analysis mm. to bring that, you know, to write for an Australian media outlet, you know, how important is that? Yeah. Well, very actually. I think, um, I mean, there's plenty of 
foreign journalists from other countries who do a terrific job in, in China, no question. Um, and we can readily access that. We can get on the New York Times site or, you know, or newspapers access, you know, get, get mm. license agreements for their copy. Um, yeah, that's all, all true. But what they don't provide is Australian-specific um, knowledge. And, for example, you know, the biggest story... Well, you know, some of the biggest stories in the world happen to be Australia-China stories. Um, in my time there, uh, very early on, as the price of iron ore got higher and higher, we, you know, we suddenly we had the iron ore wars, which kind of occupied a very large amount of my time trying to mm. work out what's happening in the Chinese steel industry, the construction industry, how do they work, and how is that playing out with um, the state-owned investments overseas in Australia. Um, this was a very specific Australian Australia. story, which sort of led the world agenda um, mm. to some extent. Similarly, you could say similar things about defence. You know, the Australian Defence White Paper of 2009, you know, that was a pivotal moment in how the world um, saw China and, and China saw the world. And there's been a series of those sort of events where if there weren't Australian correspondents on the ground, you know, we would know a whole lot less about very important things. No, that's right. And is there any sort of um, one standout memory or story that mm. you're going to have from your six years, seven uh, years abroad? Look, there are lots of standout memories. Um, look, I thought one that I just drilled down into a little bit was really what sort of... You know, I spent the first six months in China just, uh, pottering around the economy, you know, inside steel mills, steel trading yards, iron ore mines, trying to work out what was going on you know, and affecting markets back home in Australia. And suddenly in the end of 2007, I'd only been there a few months, BHP built and announced its takeover of Rio. And BHP at the time were saying, were, were, were thinking China's almost, you know, barely a footnote on their, uh, on their strategic whiteboard. Um, it was all about London, it was all about investors, it was a bit about Australia. Um, but China was just, an, it's almost an afterthought. And that, you know, within kind of, by the time, before breakfast on, the, you know, the morning of the takeover, you know, we had confirmed this was a very big deal for, for China. Steel mills were, were agitated. Um, two months later, we saw that extraordinary um, share raid by Chinalco, the state-owned aluminium giant on the Rio, Rio Tinto share registry, which actually completely blew a hole in BHP's takeover plans. Um, yeah. And suddenly we're, you know, I'm kind of inside, well, trying to be inside Chinalco, trying to be inside the, the various kind of indus, you know, industry departments in China, the planning authorities, um, inside the mining companies in Rio and BHP, and it was just such a staggering sort of roller, roller coaster ride and, and sort of um, such a hyper-stimulating year and a half, which really culminated in the arrest of, of the Rio Tinto steel executive, uh, iron ore executive Stern Hu in 2009. Wow. Well, I'm sure you've got lots more stories like that. And tonight, the New Voices delegates will be hearing more. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me.